Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As longtime listeners of our morning show know, each and every week a guest and I discuss the weekly parasha, the Torah reading that will be uh, chanted or read in synagogues throughout the world. This week, the Torah portion is entitled Bo. From the book of Exodus, it begins with Exodus chapter 10 and concludes with Exodus chapter 13, verse 16. Let me offer some highlights of this parasha before we uh, unpack some of the more significant aspects of it. In this week's parasha, the last three of the ten plagues are visited upon Egypt. A swarm of locusts devours all the crops and greenery. A thick, palpable darkness develops and descends upon the land. And, as many of you will know, all the firstborn of Egypt are killed at the stroke of midnight on the 15th of the Hebrew month of Nisan. God commands the Israelites that the first mitzvah, the first commandment to be given to the people of Israel is to establish a calendar based on the monthly rebirth of the moon. The Israelites are instructed to bring a Passover offering to God. A lamb or kid goat is to be slaughtered and its blood sprinkled on the doorposts and lintels of every Israelite home so that God should, as the text says, pass over those homes when he comes to kill the Egyptian firstborn, from whence emerges the name of the festival Passover. The roasted meat of the offering is to be eaten that night, together with unleavened bread, which we now call matzah, and bitter herbs. The death of the firstborn seems to break Pharaoh's resistance, and he drives the children of Israel from his land. The Torah tells us that so hastily did they depart that there is no time for their dough to rise, and the only provisions they take along are unleavened. Before they go, they ask their Egyptian neighbors for gold, silver, and garments, fulfilling the promise made to Abraham that his descendants would leave Egypt with great wealth. As the Torah portion concludes, the children of Israel are commanded to consecrate all firstborn and to observe the anniversary of the Exodus each year by removing leaven from their possessions for seven days, eating matzah, and telling the story of their redemption to their children. The Torah interestingly ends this section by telling us of the commandment to wear tefillin, those boxes which you may see in pictures or if you attend synagogue that are placed on the arm and the head as a reminder of the exodus and their resultant commitment to God. It is a Torah portion 
chock full of interesting uh, events and Hebrew words that are quite nuanced. With me this morning is one of the foremost uh, teachers of our generation, Rabbi Lawrence Englander of Toronto. He now serves as senior scholar at Congregation Sinai in Toronto and retired from Solel Congregation in 2014, of which he is the founding rabbi and served there between 1973 and 2014. Rabbi Englander received his doctorate of Hebrew letters from Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute in Religion in the field of Jewish mysticism and rabbinics. He has taught in the Religious Studies Department at York University in Toronto and spent a semester teaching rabbinical students at the Leo Beck College in London, England. He has written several articles on Jewish mysticism, as well as a book entitled The Mystical Study of Ruth, published by Scholars Press. He is the former editor of the Central Conference of American Rabbis Journal, and I know that he has also published a novel. Uh, in addition, he has played an active role in establishing two Mississauga, Ontario interfaith organizations. He was appointed in 2005 as a member of the Order of Canada for his work in the community, one of just a few rabbis ever to receive this highest order. Rabbi Englander, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you, Rabbi Garten. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it is a pleasure. And as often, I look forward to learning with you this morning. We want to begin not with one of the more famous stories, but with a verse that challenges all the readers of Torah, which is found in Exodus chapter 10, beginning with verse 16 and concluding five verses later. So for those of you who may be following along in our reading this morning, we're going to start in Exodus 10, verse 16. And Pharaoh hurriedly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I stand guilty before the Lord your God and before you. Forgive my offense just this once. Plead with the Lord your God that he remove this death from me. So he, referring to Moses, left Pharaoh's presence and pleaded with the Lord. The Lord caused a shift to a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and hurled them into the Sea of Reeds. Not a single locust remained in the territory of Egypt. So this is the eighth plague that seems to have come to a conclusion. But verse 20 is where we want to begin our study. But the Lord stiffened Pharaoh's heart. V'yichazek Adonai et lev Pharaoh, v'lo shilach et b'nei Yisrael. But the Lord yechazek Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. 
it's not the first time we've seen that phraseology. So let's begin there. What is this all about after Pharaoh seems to be willing to give in? As you mentioned at the beginning, Rabbi Garten, this seems to be a, a recurring pattern with every plague. Uh, that it happens, the tragedy occurs uh, through the, the country, and Pharaoh, uh, heart, Pharaoh's heart is stiffened. So when the rabbis in rabbinic literature in the Midrash took a look at this, here's what they said about it. Rabbi Yochanan said, does this not provide an opening for heretics to say that Pharaoh was not allowed by God to repent? I mean, after all, one of the major tenets of both uh, Judaism and Christianity is that one of the greatest gifts that God gave to humanity is free will. And now it seems that God is arbitrarily removing that free will from Pharaoh, and it looks like he's forced to undergo all these 10 plagues and have his people suffer with him. Doesn't seem fair. However, what I want to do with you today is to take a careful look at the 10 plagues, and you mentioned that some of these words are very carefully nuanced, and that's what we're going to take a look at. For those of you that are following in your own Bibles, I will quote the chapter and verse so that you can uh, take a look. I want to begin all the way back with the first plague, which is Exodus chapter 7, verse 22. And after God sends the plague of blood, Pharaoh's magicians duplicate that plague. And so Pharaoh's reaction, it says, Pharaoh's heart stiffened. The exact same verb that Rabbi Garten used uh, a little while ago, vayechezak, lev paro. Um, and so that's the way Pharaoh um, responded. The second plague of frogs. After the frogs came, uh, once again, Pharaoh looked at it and it says, vehachbed et livo, which can, you can translate as Pharaoh's heart became stubborn or literally heavy or weighty. But no. So, uh, Rabbi, since some may be following you, yeah. In the second plague, do you want to give them the verse? Yes, it's chapter eight, verse eleven. Notice in both those cases, the subject of the verb is Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart stiffened. Pharaoh's heart became stubborn. Let's look at plague number three, the gnats, chapter eight, verse fifteen. Once again, the reaction is the same as before. Pharaoh's heart stiffened. Plague number four, the insects, chapter 8, verse 28. Pharaoh became stubborn. Once again, the, uh, the Hebrew uh, is Pharaoh became heavy of heart. Then we go to uh, the next plague, pestilence, chapter 9, verse 7. And what do we have? Pharaoh remained stubborn, exactly the same thing. But now, here is the turning point. Chapter 9, verse 12, the sixth plague, the plague of boils. For the very first time, Scripture states, Vayachazek Adonai et lev paro, and the eternal stiffened Pharaoh's heart. So when you really look at the sequence of the plagues and the sequence of Pharaoh's reactions, for the first five, he decided to resist, to become stubborn, to have a stiffened heart. It is only with the sixth plague that it says God stiffened Pharaoh's heart. 
I think that would be the equivalent to an expression that we have, which is that you paint yourself into a corner. And that seems to be exactly what Pharaoh did. He became so stubborn that his character did not allow him to relent. And so by the sixth plague, it was God who said, fine, you've painted yourself into a corner. You're going to stay there until you let my people go. Uh, you can almost imagine God in the sense of fate, if you wish. Remember, the ancient Greeks used to say that character is fate. And Pharaoh certainly sealed his own fate through his, um, through his egotism and his stubbornness, but he did it to himself. So you've um, allowed our, re our listeners and those who are following in a text to imagine that the plagues simply um, hardened Pharaoh's resistance. That the uh, phrase hardened his heart might be best understood, as you said, painted himself into a corner, but also perhaps stiffened his heart or made his heart heavy uh, is a notion of resistance. Um, and could you help our listeners understand why Pharaoh would resist helping the Egyptians avoid these catastrophes? For in some sense, all of the plagues impact mostly on what I'll call innocent, although I recognize that tradition might not call the Egyptians innocent, uh, in the area of enslavement, but um, why would the why would Pharaoh uh, continue to have these plagues inflicted on his people? I think there's a couple of ways of looking at that. First of all, biblical scholars tell us that really what's going on here there's a lot more at stake. What's happening here is really nothing less than a battle of the gods. Pharaoh considered himself to be a god. The Egyptian people considered him to be a god sitting on the throne. And so basically what Pharaoh is saying is, I am the god of the land. There is no other god that's going to come in here and tell me what to do. And that's why he remained stubborn, because this was really a fight to the death uh, between these two gods. The other way that you can look at it in terms of a modern uh, perspective um, think of Saddam Hussein um, uh, when all the uh, bombs were falling, when uh, it was clear that his empire was coming to ruins, uh, along with the horrible uh, results on his people, he too refused to relent because of his personality, because of his stubborn character. The same idea, right? that there's some people that are just so power hungry and so convinced that they are right, that they will not really respond to anybody else. And that's certainly a lesson uh, for a lot of us today. And I think we've learned that lesson over and over again during the time of the pandemic. And I'll have more to say about that in a moment. Well, so that's an interesting way to uh, frame this uh, experience of the 10 plagues that we have a battle between the God of the land and the God of heaven. The God of the Egyptian people, and as the Torah presents it, the God of all people. Um, 
though it will be later on in the books of the prophet that the universalism of Adonai will become more clearly identified. Certainly, Adonai makes it um, known that he has a special relationship with the Israelites, but he is the God of all. Um, So we now have this battle between the two forces. I don't want to say good and bad. Let's say heaven and earth. Um, And then we come to the passage that we read in which does God, Adonai, Elohim, Yahweh get tired of Pharaoh's behavior? Does he need to teach Pharaoh that there are consequences for his behavior? Uh, Why is it that the text takes this small, little, but meaningful turn? Um, Is it to teach Pharaoh what real redemption is? All right. Now, you know that in Jewish tradition, there's a very important phrase that we use when discussing a text, and that is, on the other hand. (laughs) And so I want to take another look at this and why God's name is continually mentioned to address your question. On the one hand, we've talked about the fact that Pharaoh caused his own demise. He painted himself into a corner. On the other hand, May there be a sense in the story of the Ten Plagues that something is going on beyond human agency, something beyond ourselves. And to address that, I found an interesting quotation from a Hasidic rabbi. Uh, His name is Rabbi Yehuda Leib Alter of Ger, and he lived just at the turn of the 20th century in, in Russia. And here's what he has to say about it. This has to do with the conflict between divine foreknowledge and free will, which is what we've been talking about. We seek to make clear in this world that which the Creator already knows, and thus to look beyond our own choices. This is just what we saw in Egypt, where the Holy Blessed One performed wonders for us. In other words, what I'm trying to get at is that There are certain times in history, if we are perceptive enough, that we may perceive something going on, some trend happening, some lesson being delivered to us that may be beyond what our own will wants to express or what we think is best for us. And that might be what's going on in Egypt at this time too, that if you take a look at the average Egyptian They may be saying, okay, Pharaoh is our God, but something's not right here. There seems to be a larger picture that even our king, our God, is missing. Even the magicians, when they looked at one of the plagues that they couldn't uh, duplicate, they said, "Um, this is Etzba Elohim. This is the finger of God that's being operative here. And so I'm wondering, and I think both of our religious traditions would, would attest to this, that there are certain times in history, if we are perceptive enough, if we have enough people thinking this way, that we can really see beyond our painted corners and we can really see a bigger picture of what's going on in the world. I mentioned the pandemic before, and I think we can look at this again um, through Rabbi uh, Leib Alter's eyes. And basically... 
what the pandemic seems to be saying to us is just stop for a minute. Halt your normal routines and take a look at where you're going in life. Now, some people would go further and say, well, God is sending this pandemic, right? That if God created everything, God must be creating the virus too. I would soften that. And I would say that what God has done in creating our world is God has planted all the raw materials into the world that we need in order to discover them and to turn them into agents of healing. That's why we, uh, in Jewish tradition, we have always valued the medical profession and science because that's what doctors and scientists do. They take God's creations that are, that are already scattered throughout the earth and they learn how to work with them and create medicines and instruments of healing for us. And that's the message, of course, that we're getting in this pandemic too, that we need that ingenuity to find vaccinations, to administer those agents of healing to people who require them. But I'm also talking on a more personal level that all of us have a chance just to sit back and say, every day, I woke up, I had my breakfast, I went to work. Maybe I love my work and that's great. Maybe I'm not so crazy about my job. Is this a time to rethink it and maybe do something else? I have a family. I may love my spouse and or partner. I may love my family and my children. Or there may be a dysfunction going on in the family that I just haven't bothered to address because I've just kind of drifted on. Is this a time that I should really stop and think about that? Is this a time when I've always wanted to learn a new skill or do something really creative and I've always put it off? Is this the time during the pandemic that I can say to myself, now's my chance, and that I can look at the bigger picture of my own life and see what I can make of it? So as you speak about the human ability and capacity to see a bigger picture, you've alluded to the fact that there's a danger here, that there is a danger that one sees the hand of God, which is a metaphor that's used throughout the book of Exodus, um, a strong uh, outstretched arm uh, impacting on history. Um, so, as you've suggested, one can see the hand of God in the pandemic, bringing retribution to millions of people. How does one turn from that vision to a vision saying God has presented us with opportunities? Yeah. Both, both sides of your um, body, on one hand and on the other hand, uh, call for certain type of uh, spectacles, uh, a prescription of eyeglasses. How do we move from tragedy being some sort of divine retribution, as it is in this text, to tragedy being an opportunity? I wouldn't even use the word retribution, Rabbi Garden. I, I, I think even in the story of the Exodus, God is presenting the opportunity. Pharaoh fails to pick it up. The retribution is self-induced. Um, ah. and, and so... 
to me, um, Adonai is the God of possibilities. That's what God does. God presents all of us uh, collectively and individually with possibilities uh, that we can pick up uh, for either good or evil. It's up to us how we use that. If it's for retribution, it's because we've caused it. If it's for deliverance or for success or for benefit to ourselves and others, that's also something that we have discovered on our own. God presents the opportunities. It's up to us to discover them and to make the best of them. So I want to push you a little bit about this. Um, You have nicely helped the listener understand the conflict between the God of the Egyptians and the God of heaven, as presented in the text, the one and only uh, non-human deity. But the Egyptian people are suffering by virtue of Pharaoh's decisions. Do the Egyptian people in the text, as you read it, have an opportunity to embrace the God of the Israelites, a God who seems to be more of a protective God, who would give them greater freedom of choice? Or are they condemned to this eternal um, life of enslavement to Pharaoh? The text doesn't give us any indication that there was any embracing of the God of heaven uh, in the text. What it does show us, though, is that when Moses brought the people out of Egypt, after the plagues were over, he went back to Midian, where his wife and and children were waiting for him, and his father-in-law, who was a Midianite priest, a pagan priest, said to Moses, After witnessing what your people have gone through, I now understand that Adonai is the true God. And I think it was through the eyes of Jethro that the Torah kind of gives us this possibility that there is an opportunity for people to see beyond uh, their own ideological framework. Uh, The Egyptians just weren't given that choice because Pharaoh didn't give it to them. And if any individual Egyptian said, you know what, Pharaoh, I don't believe in you anymore. I'm siding with Moses and I'm going to go with the God of Israel. My guess is the next day that person would either be dead or a slave. Although we do read in this week's Torah portion (coughs) that Egyptians offer to the leaving Israelites wealth. Now, the Torah says that they... Um, offer this wealth in um, affirmation, confirmation of God's promise that the children of Israel shall leave Egypt or the children of Abraham shall leave Egypt wealthier um, than when they went in. But might we not read this as the Egyptians understanding their role in slavery? Um, and somehow trying to make expiation for having colluded with Pharaoh in the enslavement of the Israelites. All right, let's take a look at that text. 
One way of looking at it is to say the Egyptians finally realize the plagues are over after this horrible, horrible debacle of their firstborn children being, being killed. But finally, Pharaoh is letting them go and they're going to be rid of these people that have caused all this uh, trouble on Egypt. You could just see them wiping their hands and saying, good riddance, here, take some gold, take some silver, take my china, take anything you want, just get the heck out of here. All right, as kind of a, um, a relief that they're gone. On the other hand, what might be going on is that there may have been some Egyptian neighbors of the Israelites who had interacted with them all the time and who said, look, these Israelites aren't so bad. They're nice people. Unfortunately, they're, they're really being done uh, wrongly by our king, uh, but we like them individually. We have nothing against them. And as a sign of goodwill, when they leave, we just want to give them a gift to say, look, we have no hard feelings. This was imposed on us by our ruler. So I think you can take a look at it either way. Well, you've lovingly introduced to our listeners the notion that on one hand and on the other hand, um, I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Lawrence Englander of Toronto, for helping us explore a very challenging verse in the Torah for Jewish faith and Jewish facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear a rebroadcast of our show as a podcast on chri.ca or on iTunes. Shalom and have a good day.